What a day. Good morning, everyone. Our campus at Streamwood, Tri-Village, our Hispanic ministry across the hall. We want to just tell you we are thrilled you are here. I want to say to those of you that are in our overflow place in the gym, it's completely packed. To those of you that are in our second overflow place in the chapel, we want to welcome all of you. Would you join me in welcoming everyone? So today, this Easter 2017, I want to talk about hope. Easter hope. The life-changing hope. God freely in his grace offers us in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the hope that Sam and Tanya illustrated in the video. It's the hope they display each and every day of their lives among us as they are resting and trusting in Christ in spite of Tanya's ongoing battle with cancer. Some major things coming up for her this summer. As a matter of fact, in our last hour, Sam uh, played the trumpet in our orchestra in our traditional service. Amazing young couple. You see, the issue isn't whether or not you have hope. The issue is where you place your hope. And there are only two options. One is in the creator. The other is in creation. The one is in who God is and all that he is. The other is in some aspect of what he has made, like your smarts or your doctor's smarts or your job or your boyfriend or your family or your assets and on and on and on. But today, this day, millions and millions of Christians all around the world are gathering to celebrate their hope in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it yours? This is Easter. What an incredible moment. Now today, as I talk about hope, I want to do three things with the subject. I want to talk about hope today. And by that I mean in our broader current culture. Then I want to talk about hope in the Bible then I want to look at some distinctives of Christian resurrection Easter hope. So let's start with hope today, where we are as a culture today. In a new book that's addressed actually to skeptics of Christianity entitled Making Sense of God, New York City pastor Tim Keller tells a story to illustrate the power of hope. He says, imagine you have two women, exactly the same age, the same educational background, and the same temperament, and you hire both women to work on your assembly line, and you say to both of them, your job is to take part A and to insert it into slot B and then pass it to the next person. And you are to do that over and over, eight hours a day, five days a week. By the way, I had that kind of job in high school, and I was so bad I got fired. <laughs> I mean, I lasted about three weeks. And you tell them that, or for both of them, I should say, the conditions will be the same, they will have the same amount of breaks. 
But to the one that you say in privately, uh, your salary will be $30,000 a year. But to the other, you say again privately, your salary for the year will be $30 million. Now a month goes by, and the first woman is overheard uh, complaining, saying, you know, I don't know if I can do this. This is so tedious. It's so boring. Uh, the conditions are so difficult. I just don't know I'm going to make it. I'm, I'm so frustrated. I've only been here a month. One day she bumps into the second woman who works a different shift, shift and she says, how's it going for you? And the second woman says, oh, I love my job. I love the conditions. I love the people. As a matter of fact, I'm so happy I sing when I work. Now here you have two human beings doing exactly the same thing. One is loving it. The other is hating it. What's the difference? It's their expectation of the future. Now the point isn't that money solves all our problems, okay? Because it doesn't. The point is what we believe about our future controls how we experience our present. And the same is true with each and every one of us. You see, hope to your soul is what oxygen is to your lungs, what blood is to your heart. It's vital. So today, in the United States, in our Western culture, and really throughout history, in any and every culture, hope is vitally important. I mean, it's where we derive our meaning, our security, our, our, our direction. But let me go on and make a second point about our culture today, and that is hope in our culture today is in decline. I'm talking about a broader culture. Actually, it's in the nosedive. I mean, I could illustrate this in so many ways, but let's just take movies, TV shows that are increasingly about the end of civilization, the destruction of humanity. I mean, series like uh, The Matrix, the Terminator series, uh, Mad Max, uh, Hunger Games, Planet of the Apes, Batman, I could go on and on. TV shows uh, like The Walking Dead. Now one or two, no big deal. But dozens and dozens and dozens over the last 15 plus years, what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. They're reflecting the loss of confidence we have today in our future. It's not just in a decline, it's in a nosedive. So, today, I mean, words like hopelessness, bleaklessness, describe us. I mean, isn't this, isn't this why, and here's a statistic, a sobering statistic, isn't it why from 1999 uh, to 2014, the suicide rate in the United States has gone up almost 25%? almost 25% in 15 years. You see, when our country was founded, it was built on hope in God, confidence in God. But as we became increasingly secular in the United States over a couple hundred years, 
our confidence, our hope in God gave way to confidence and hope in our country, our nation, national might, our politics, our power. But today, both of those are out the window. Today, we no longer have hope in God. We no longer have hope in our nation. So we are today left with the only option available, and that is hope in self. In self. Individual happiness, personal autonomy are the foundations for our culture today. As the poet put it, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But you know what that's like? That's like trying to run an ultra marathon in Alaska in the snow barefooted. I mean, the distance, the, the terrain, uh, the temperature, the snow makes that impossible. We were not designed to do that. We were not designed to live like this. So today, more words, despair, dystopia, hopelessness, increasingly describe our disbelief in the possibility of the fullness of life apart from self-gratification. So our lives are all about ourselves. So what you, I want you to understand so far is hope is important today. It is very important today. It's the illustration of the two women. Uh, but the reality is that hope is in decline. Now the third thing I want to say is this is all because our hope is misplaced. Look at this marvelous theological statement. The fact that jellyfish have survived for 650 million years despite not having brains gives hope to many people. <laughs> but does it? Uh, do we really find substantive, uh, substantive Sustainable hope in comparing ourselves to others who are less advantaged? Does your hope in a raise keep you from anger? Make you a better parent? Does your hope that your team will win or that your kids will behave transform the pain of your cancer, your loss, your divorce? I don't think so. Where in the world did we get this idea that if I get this great education, I land this great job, uh, I have this great friendship, this great boyfriend, this great girlfriend, this great family, these great kids, the, these great assets, this great, the great vacation, uh, great weekends, where did we come up with the notion that if we have these great things, then somehow we're going to change on the inside? I mean, come on. Isn't the tragedy of the 21st century, you could say the paradox, that there is rampant hopelessness? I mean, in our broader culture, in the midst of rampant affluence. And so today, we're kidding ourselves. You see, hope is important. It's vitally important. 
But hope is in decline, and the reason it's in decline is because our hope is misplaced. Individual happiness, personal autonomy can't bear the weight we give it. It just won't work. It's why we see the headlines we see. Now, God knows all this. So that's why he's given us Jesus Christ in this incredible act of grace. And so what I want to do now is transition from hope in the world to hope in the Bible and look at the hope of the resurrection, the greatest of all hopes. And I want you to see a dramatic picture of the power of hope in the life of the Apostle Paul. So if you have your Bibles, there's Bibles in the racks in front of you. You want to turn on your Bible, we'll put it on the screen. But turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts and Acts chapter 26. Now the context here is that the Apostle Paul is on trial. He's on trial because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And this trial is a, actually it's an ongoing trial, is a life and death matter. And Paul knows it. Paul knows his life is hanging in the balance. And so from a human perspective, if anyone should be uptight, anyone should be in despair, anyone should be experiencing hopelessness, it's the Apostle Paul in this context. But I want you to see his strength. I want you to see what he says to the hostile Jewish king, Agrippa. Let's pick it up in verse 6 of Acts chapter 26. And now it is because of my hope, there's our word, in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, I want you to note, Paul uses the word hope three times. And then he states that the object of his hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll see this a little more clearly beginning in verse 22. So, jump over to verse 22. But God has helped me, Paul continues, God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to the small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people, the Jews, and to the Gentiles. So here Paul clarifies that he's talking about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the object. That's the content of his hope. And he adds astonishingly in verses 22 and 23 that the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is precisely what the Old Testament taught. Now let's continue in verse 24. At this point, Festus, Festus was the Roman governor, so you had the Jewish governor, King Agrippa, and also the Roman governor, Festus. Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Not good news for Paul, right? I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is actually familiar with these things. 
and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except in these chains. Now I want to say two things. First of all, Paul is unequivocally stating that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was not some sort of religious myth. Something the disciples drummed up because they needed to believe it or they wanted to believe it or they had to believe it. Paul says in the midst of his trial, speaking to the most, two most powerful people in Palestine, that this is historically verifiable. He says, uh, uh, Agrippa, you're familiar with these events. It didn't happen in a corner. You can go and check it out. In other words, this is an extraordinary, it's an exceptional argument for the historical reality of the resurrection. <laughs> because if Paul was making this up, Agrippa would call him on it. Agrippa Festus would say, no way. As a matter of fact, neither one of those two leaders say this didn't happen. Neither one of the two dispute the history, the recent history. Instead, what they do is they attack Paul's character. You're insane, buddy. Sounds like a typical marriage conflict. That was a joke. <laughs> now, here's the facts. Well, they don't work, so... Let me tell you how I feel about you, you know, right? You guys look way too pious. <laughs> now think about this, uh, the history of this. Now let me go on and, and talk about this from Festus and Agrippa's perspective. I mean, we don't know for sure what was holding these two gentlemen back from faith in Christ. We just don't know. But I can say to you today, you cannot get to the resurrection if you begin with a self-imposed philosophical bias that miracles don't happen. Well, I mean, never mind that the resurrection is a historically verifiable fact, one of the best attested facts in history. My worldview doesn't allow me to believe in miracles. My worldview doesn't allow me to believe in Christ. Why in the world is your worldview more privileged than theirs? And by theirs, I mean the early church. Now, yes, these people were pre-scientific, but they were not gullible. Romans, Greeks, and Jews to a person had no categories for someone being bodily raised from the dead in the middle of history. No one thought that was, was possible, just like people today think it's impossible. So I say this because I want you to be very careful when you come to the Bible of cultural arrogance. Watch it. Now, my point is that not only did the resurrection change the Apostle Paul's life, not only did it give him this incredible ability to speak profoundly and boldly regardless of the consequences, but this resurrection hope became the main source 
of Paul's entire life. So he says in verse 8, why should anyone consider it incredible that God, who can do whatever he wants, should raise people from the dead, that God raises the dead? You see, what's going on here is Paul is staking his life on the resurrection, on the reality of the resurrection. And what he's implying in this account is that the resurrection changes everything. Everything. Now, are you there? Have you experienced this? So what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you four distinctives of Easter resurrection hope. I mean, what does it look like? What does it mean? First, number one, Easter means there is life after death. I think of Steve Jobs, founder of Apple. After I die, that's it. I won't be here, I won't exist. And really, he's expressing what so many of of us in the West today believe. We believe life is short, I mean tragically uh, short, and then death ends everything. So we are a random collection of molecules existing in a random, meaningless universe. But if, or however, Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead, as Paul is staking his life on, then that means there is life after death. Now let me take this further. Because second, Easter means our future is personal and relational. Personal and relational. Now, let me illustrate this in contrast to Eastern religions. Eastern religions today, and I want you to understand this, uh, assert that after you die, uh, after we die, we become drops of water in the impersonal ocean of life. Now, what goes unstated is that upon death, we will lose the thing we want most in life. Love. Love. But again, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the deepest desire of your heart To experience love, to receive love, to give love, to live in loving relationships will be fulfilled, not in this life, but in heaven. In heaven. Because heaven, the Bible tells us, is a world of love. Now, how in the world could that be? Well, that is because God is a fountain of love. And the Christian in heaven will drink freely, swim in the nonstop overflowing rivers and streams of God's love. That will be our experience in heaven. And our relationships will be fully resurrected, fully restored. They will be perfect. Now that means there will never be a millisecond of envy in heaven. Not one of pride. Not one of sadness, disappointment. Not one of anger. As a matter of fact, the happier you are, 
uh, in heaven, the happier the people around you will be. The happier the people around you are, the happier you will be. Let's say you knew, knew fairly well a girl when she was 10 years old. Times go by, you haven't seen her. And finally, when at the age of 35, you bump into her, she is a 35-year-old woman of beauty. And as you're talking to her and you're processing this dramatic change from age 10 to age 35, you realize that she looks totally different, totally wonderful, totally beautiful, but there's some senses as you talk to her that you discover are still the same. Some aspects of her life, her vocabulary, or whatever. Now, after Jesus Christ rose from the dead and began to appear to disciples and to groups of people, some groups as large as 500 people, to demonstrate that he was alive from the dead, it was the same thing for them. At first, Jesus looked totally different. He was beyond recognition. They didn't recognize him. But after a little while, they recognized him and they realized it was the same Jesus, just totally different. That will be the believer's experience in heaven. We will be on the one hand ourselves. But because of growth and transformation, uh, we, will experience, we will radiate a, a glory and a goodness and a power and a love that will make us infinitely different. And our relationships will be perfect. So I say this because I want you to understand in contrast to all the messages around us today, usually subtle, that you as a human being are not a bug on the windshield of life. You have an incredible story. God is writing your story. And, and the story has a brilliant, out-of-this-world future where the dominant reality of your future will be love, relational, personal love. Do you know this love? Do you know this grace? Do you know this hope? Now third, Easter means there is life after death. Easter means this hope is personal. But I also want you to understand that Easter means there is a purpose in pain. Your pain right now today. There is a purpose in your work, your job, your career. There's a purpose in your singleness, your, your marriage. There is a daily, constant, overriding purpose in life made evident when Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. Now let me just talk about pain. Sometimes pain is too deep for words. Uh, you want to talk about it, and, and you can talk about it, but you really can't get down and express how deep your pain is. And the people around you that love you and care about you want to talk about it, but they don't know what to say because sometimes pain is too deep for words. But pain is inevitable. But misery is a choice. 
And that choice is a function of the daily decisions we make about where we're going to place our hope. Where are you placing your hope? I mean, to know, and I'm, I'm going to talk about the Christian hope for a second, to know that because of the death of Jesus Christ, at the moment we believe in Christ, our sins are totally taken away, and God gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and because of our union in Christ's death and resurrection, uh, we are what the New Testament tells us is married to Jesus, and Jesus is our husband, and we are his bride. And we will never be more loved, we will never be more accepted, we will never be more welcomed than we are right now because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. To know that, to know the gospel of grace, the forgiveness of sins, and, and to know that this life is but a warm-up to the life to come. Where out of your union and love with Christ, you will enjoy endless experiences in heaven and to know that there is a purpose in your pain that God is sovereign as he demonstrates in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to know these things are game changers and will carry you through the deepest the darkest waters it's why Paul is so confident in the face of death it's what Tom and uh, what Tom, what Sam and Tanya are illustrating as they live among us. It's what my good buddy Tom Williams and my first wife Carol lived out before our eyes, before this church's eyes, as they struggled and then succumbed to cancer. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Do you know that hope? I mean, do you really functionally know that hope? On Monday morning, do you know that hope? Because the resurrection of, of Jesus means he has all of life in his hands, right here in his hands. And that there is hope for today, and there is purpose in your disappointment, your pain, your setbacks. And so I wonder, have you received this Jesus? Do you, do you really, I mean deep down, live in light of this hope? This hope of the gospel. Now finally, fourth, and I'll be done. This Easter, this resurrection hope means our future, the future of the believer is certain. It's certain. Now, let me set this up in contrast to religion because we get tripped up here. Religion says you must do this or do that or follow these rules or perform in this certain way and then maybe... You can work your way to heaven. Maybe God will approve of you if the good outweighs the bad. That's what religion says. It's salvation by works. Christianity comes along and says, time out, no way. Salvation isn't by what you do. Because the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity is too great. So God, in his infinite mercy, his compassion, and his grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place for our sins so that Jesus could absorb our sin. So when we believe, we go free because the payment has been made and you don't need to make the payment a second time. And the resurrection 
is proof. Now let's take Costco, okay? Now my lovely wife lives at Costco. <laughs> That's overstatement. Many of you do too, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but you know the drill. You go into Costco, you got your cart, and you grab all these things, and Rhonda grabs way too much, and you just got five carts or something like that. But that's what happens when you have seven kids, and it's Easter, right? Um, but anyways, you grab your stuff, you, you go to the counter, and you pay, and then you start to work, walk out. But then this, a really nice woman, a, a nice man stops you, and they ask you for your receipt. See, a lot of you live at Costco. <laughs> Just to admit it. Why? Because your receipt is your statement that your merchandise has been paid in full. And so you're free to go. Do you see the analogy with the resurrection? The resurrection is the divine receipt emblazoned across the sky that said the payment for sins has been made in Jesus. The debt you owe God has been satisfied. So Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is totally, completely finished. And you cannot, you never will be able to work your way to heaven. You may, try to, you may spend your whole life trying to impress people. You cannot work your way to God. The debt has been paid. And the resurrection is your receipt. Your certainty, so you don't have to live life with uncertainty. Well, I don't know what's going to happen to me after I die. No, that's been solved in the cross and resurrection of Christ. So therefore, our, our, our Christian hope is personal. It's purposeful, and it's certain. But it's not tethered to a location, or a situation, or a life experience like a promotion. It's tethered to a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who died for you, and the moment you say yes to him, will wrap his loving arms around you and never ever let you go, even though nothing in your life ever works out. He will never let you go. That's the hope of the gospel. And so I wonder, have you surrendered your hopes, your aspirations, your dreams to the only hope that will sustain you and will carry you through life's difficultest, most difficult situations? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you received the receipt? Let's pray. So, Father, we are before you. It's Easter. And we are amazed at what this means. And we honor you and we exalt you and we praise you for the advent of Jesus Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And, Father, I would pray that if there's anybody in these different venues this morning who isn't sure where they are with Jesus Christ, hasn't yet come to Jesus Christ, is trying to figure this thing called Christianity out, that you would open their eyes 
And today would be the day of their salvation. And if I'm talking to you and if God is speaking to you, I want you to take this moment and confess to God that you have sinned, that you have betrayed him, you have broken trust. And thank him that he sent his son to die for that sin. And he raised him from the dead as evidence. And right now, say yes to Jesus. Say yes, I will receive Jesus as my Savior. Yes, I will believe in Jesus. I will put my full weight down on Jesus for my eternal destiny. Oh God, work in this moment. Spirit, work in this moment. Don't let it go. Come to Jesus. And Father, for the rest of us who know Jesus, we ask that you would open our eyes to, to the functional reality of the resurrection. We don't want to just say words. We don't want to say, oh, this is nice. We desperately need you to change our lives. Do that consistent with the power of the resurrected Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen.